Well, dear friends, let me ask you if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John and chapter 4. 1 John and chapter 4. Our focus is just going to be on verse 8, but I want to read to you in just a moment verses 7 to 12 of John's first epistle. Before we read the Word of God together, let us pray and ask for the Lord to help us. Gracious Father, we praise You that You are a speaking God, a God who has revealed Yourself and by Your Spirit recorded this Word for us. And Lord, we pray that as we read Your Holy Word, that we would receive it as it is, the Word of God, and that You would take Your eternal truth and use it to shape our lives, to change our thinking, to show us who You are and what You are like, that we may truly know You and love You. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, dear friends, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Again, 1 John 4, I'll read verses 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Well, this is God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, this morning, I'm endeavoring to do something that I rarely do, and that is to preach a topical sermon on a doctrine leading us into a series of sermons on this doctrine. Uh, we don't often do topical series, but this type of preaching is important in the life of the church so that we might not only examine consecutive texts, which is our normal pattern, but on occasion that we would study particular truths. And the goal here is for us to peer into the beauty of a specific truth that the Lord gives us about Himself, about His work, about His relationship to us. And the doctrine I want to examine with you starting this morning is the love of God. And this study of God's love, uh, particularly of the Father's love for His people, which has been manifested in Christ, has been rattling around in my mind for months in view of an upcoming conference that I'm preaching. Next week I'll be away and I'll participate in a conference uh, in the Banner of Truth on the topic of communion with God. Now, that title, uh, it comes from a book by John Owen that he wrote in the 17th century, Communion with God. Owen wrote truly a masterful piece that reflects upon the distinct communion that we believers are to hold with each person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the text Owen uses to flesh this out is the great apostolic benediction. Tell me if you've heard this before. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you. Well, Owen uses these attributes, the Father's love, the grace of Christ, and the fellowship of the Spirit to explain our communion with the triune God. It's a wonderful book. Not easy to read, but maybe the the best book I've ever read. Having sat at Owen's feet, learning of the love of the Father, a doctrine really neglected in the life of the church, I wanted you to benefit as well. John Owen writes this. Listen carefully to these words. Few believers can carry up their hearts and minds to rest their soul in the love of the Father. Instead, they live below it in the troublesome region of hopes and fears, storms and clouds. Now, what does Owen mean by that? Well, he means that while Christians know that Jesus loved us, they often have a misguided idea of the Father's love. Christians are prone to believe that Jesus' life and death made the Father love us. And the logic goes like this. Before the coming of Christ, there was no goodwill from the Father, no kindness toward us. He simply terrorized with His anger. He brought a sense of dread with His wrath, and all was dark before Jesus came. But the truth is that it was the Father who loved His people from before the foundation of the world. It was the Father who pictured redemption in all the types and shadows of the law. It was the Father who sent His Son to save. The Father Himself is not cold or harsh or austere or always angry. The Father Himself is full of love. The Father is the fountainhead of love from which the spring of all sweetness flows. It was the Father who purposed our redemption. The Father who set His love on us in eternity. The Father who sent Christ to save. And the Father has communicated His tenderness to us. Over and over again, the Father declares His love to His people. Love that is unconditional, eternal, unchangeable, and powerful to secure us. Beloved, our covenant God would have us as people eye this love. That is, look at this love so that we would receive it by faith. And this is what I want us to do this morning and continuing throughout this series. Again, Owen writes this, This is the will of God, that He may always be eyed as benevolent, kind, tender, loving, and unchangeable therein, that He be particularly seen as Father, as the great fountain and spring of all gracious communications and fruits of love. This is the love that Jesus came to reveal. Now, before we had eyes to see the Gospel, we couldn't see the Father in this way. He was only one of wrath and anger and fury against sin. But now that the Gospel has erupted with light into our hearts, the Father is particularly revealed as a God of love. A God who has 
good pleasure and delight on us, even from eternity. And during the next few weeks, moving into the new year, we're going to consider the Father's love. And this morning, we begin with the revelation of God's essential nature. God is love. You see that there in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 at the end. God is love. Now, this little paragraph in 1 John is in the midst of a broad exhortation exhorting us as God's people to love one another. But the root of our love, the demonstration that we are believers, is that we have been born of God. That is, of the love of God Himself, which then produces a love in us. So my goal as we come to talk about this topic and to think about the statement, God is love, is to do three things. I want to show you the nature of our Father revealed to His people. And I want to secondly, press us to receive the truth about the Father's love. And then I will call us thirdly to return the love of the Father. So firstly, let's see together the revelation of our Father's love. The revelation of our Father's love. Four times in the New Testament, we are told what God is. What God is. First, in John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus is explaining to the Samaritan woman the nature of worship and that our worship is spiritual, Jesus says that God is spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means, for one thing, that the Father is unseen. He's incorporeal. He's without a body. And He can't be contained or confined to one space. He doesn't live in temples made by the hands of men. He's not, like us, absent from one place because He's present in another place. He's everywhere present. And that's how we can be spiritually worshipped at any place. Further, He's independent of the creature and totally incorruptible. God is spirit. But then secondly, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 29, while he's talking to us about how we approach God in worship, he says that God is a consuming fire. God is burning holiness. Absolute purity. There's no flaw in Him. He's majestic. And before Him, we as mere creatures, must tremble. We should always approach Him with reverence and awe. Then thirdly, we move into 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, with another statement. God is light. Now this statement further emphasizes the undiluted purity of God. There's no unfaithfulness with God. There's no deception with God. While all men are liars, and we're all reminded of that right now in the political season, the Lord is not a man that He should lie. Moral darkness is nowhere near the Lord. He is righteous, holy, faithful, and true. And that is a tremendous comfort to us. He can always be trusted as upright. But then finally, in our text, John also tells us, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Now this does not mean simply that love is something God does. That's true. But love is who He is. Love is His essential nature. He isn't forced by some outside power 
to exercise love. Well, I, I guess I have to love you. No, He's the fountain of love. He delights to love. Love flows freely from our Father. It is natural to Him. And the evidence of this love is vast. As we say, look back to creation. God didn't have to create this world. He didn't have to create man as the pinnacle of His creation and gift the world to Him. But God is making His love known by bestowing love through all the good gifts He gives. It is natural that God would love man. He delights to give good gifts. But of course, the greatest gift is the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. The Father sending His Son to save those on whom the Father had set His love. Now, why did the Father send His love? Or send Christ? Why did He send Christ? Because He is love. Now, many have distorted this statement that God is love. It distorted His essential nature. Because they've held forth the love of God apart from all these other statements about God. Particularly God's holiness. But I want us to understand that God's love cannot be isolated from His moral purity. God doesn't have parts. He's, he's not a composite. You can't display a pie chart and say that God is 50% love and 25% holiness and 25% majesty. No, He is wholly loving and as He loves, He engages in holiness. How can this be, we may wonder? Well, John explains it as you keep reading in verses 9 and 10 of our text. He shows us what love looks like. Verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The sending of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, the precious and beloved One of the Father, to die as a sacrifice, is the preeminent display of the Father's love. Our sins called for our deaths. They demanded justice. But God's free, eternal, sovereign, infinite, unchangeable love had determined to save us. And the love that God possesses moved into action in the giving of Christ. And yet what's important to see here, and we'll reflect upon this more in the weeks ahead, is that our Father sent His Son to redeem us, not because we are lovable. I know that we like to think of ourselves as that way. He sent His Son to save us because He is love. It's the very nature of God, His loving character, that motivated the atoning work of Christ. And this is what John is telling us. Beloved, our God would have us particularly look at His love toward us to ponder and believe His love because He keeps repeating it to us. In the Old Testament, over and over and over, the Lord is drawing His attention or drawing our attention to His loving heart. Psalm 136 is a famous example 
I thought about us singing it this morning, but I thought you might get annoyed with the repeating refrain. Maybe it would have been good to make a point. Psalm 136 is that psalm which rehearses creation, the exodus, the conquest, and the settlement of Israel. And then every statement is followed by another statement 26 times, for His steadfast love endures forever. For His steadfast love endures forever. For His steadfast love... I can say this 26 times. You get the point. But then in the fullness of time, with the revelation of the Gospel of Jesus, again, our Father compels us to behold His love, to see His enduring steadfast love. And it's this fact of God's prevailing steadfast love, His nature to love, to which John is pointing right here in 1 John 4, verse 8. God is love. And that's what I want us to ponder so as to take it in and to help us further peer into this amazing truth. I want to take you back to a foundational text on the character of God. You can turn there if you like. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, where the Lord declares His name to Moses. Moses had asked the Lord after the whole golden calf debacle and after he pleaded with the Lord to forgive Israel, Moses then prayed, Lord, show me your glory. And in response to Moses' prayer, the Lord told Moses that he would have all of his goodness pass before Moses, though Moses would be hidden in the cleft of the rock, and the Lord would proclaim his name to Moses. So the Lord is passing by in front of Moses, and then we hear the proclamation. It's interesting that God doesn't show him a picture, but He gives him a name. That's significant. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. And because He abounds, that is, He spills over like a wine, like wine overflowing the cup. Because He abounds in steadfast love, it's no surprise to hear the Lord also tell Moses that He, the Father, keeps steadfast love to thousands. The God of love, that's who He is, shows love. And in the showing of His love, what does He do? He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That covers all the categories of sin. He forgives iniquity, the inner twistedness of our hearts. He forgives transgression. You know, when God said, this is the line, don't cross it, and you do it anyway. And He forgives a simple missing of the mark, sin. And yet, God's love is not blind indulgence. He's not like the Father who never disciplines or who just disregards what is right. That wouldn't be loving at all. Thus, He says, here in verse 7, neither does He leave the guilty unpunished. By no means can He clear the guilty. It just so happens when I read Nahum to you, that statement is recited there as well. But here's the question. How can the God who is love and does love give love to those who are guilty? Because He can by no means clear the guilty. Well, Moses doesn't give us an answer to that question. Though he has something of an answer in the covenant that God made because the Lord brought His people near to Him through a blood sacrifice. 
the people's guilt was laid on the sacrificial animal and it was slaughtered to make atonement to both cleanse of sin and propitiate or satisfy God's justice. But brethren, the fact is, only the Gospel of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is the Lamb, the substitutionary sacrifice that can actually represent us and cleanse us and offer Himself to satisfy God's justice, only that can explain these two ideas of the depth of love and mercy shown to the guilty because our guilt has to be taken away. There has to be a love that is holy. And Christ explains how that can be. There's a hymn that reflects upon this. It's John Newton's hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. And he says in verse 4 of that hymn, Let us wonder grace and justice turn and point to mercy's store, mercy's provision. When through grace in Christ our trust is, Justice smiles and asks no more. The Lord would have His people see in the provision of His Son that His nature is loving and that love for His people cannot be contained. It abounds. It spills over. It's immeasurable. It's given the greatest gift that could ever be given. And due to our struggle to grasp this, due to our doubts and our fickleness, and our lack of love ourselves and loyalty, the Lord keeps pressing this truth to our hearts that we would see that He is merciful and gracious. He keeps telling us that He's full of steadfast love. In fact, the language of Exodus 34 verse 6 describing God abounding in steadfast love, it's repeated eight more times specifically, word for word, in the Old Testament. Twice in the law, once in the historical books, twice in the prophets, four more times in the Psalms. It's as though the Lord is telling us, I know you're prone to not believe what I'm telling you, so I'm going to put it in every portion of Scripture so that you can keep reading this until you believe it. And that's not even to mention all the times that the saints of God praise the Lord for not forsaking His steadfast love or take comfort in the fact that His steadfast love preserves us and pursues us and surrounds us, or simply saying like the psalmist does, your steadfast love reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness extends to the clouds. You see, our God knows that our faith is weak. And though He tells us plainly that He loves us, and though believers do magnify this love, still, we do not remain confident of our Father's kindness toward us. To, so to further secure us, there is virtually nothing that we could imagine under the sun that has a loving and tender nature to which our Father has not also compared Himself in the Scriptures. Think of it. Our Father is like a father who teaches His children how to walk and takes them in His arms and leads them with cords of love. Hosea 11. Our Father yearns for His people like a father. He has fatherly compassion on us, remembering that we are dust. Psalm 103. Not only a father, our Father is like a mother who nurses and comforts her children. Isaiah 66. And though a mother, it would seem, could never forget her nursing child and fail to have compassion on that child, though she may forget, 
the Lord will never forget His people. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah 49. God compares Himself to a husband who faithfully loves his bride, even rejoicing over her with singing. He likewise is the true shepherd who never ceases to provide for his sheep, even pursuing us with literally chesed. I'll, I'll say the word that Dr. Wilborn didn't say last week. I'll, I'll spit it. I'll spit at you. Chesed. He, he pursues us with chesed until we dwell in his house forever. Psalm 23. Moreover, the Lord repeatedly uses the imagery of a mother bird hiding his people in the shelter of his wing and how he shields his own from the fierce attacks of the enemies. What is our God saying to his people with all of these images? He's saying, dear Christian, my heart is one of love to you and my love is the only rest for your soul. Apart from me and my love to you, there is no rest, there is no peace, there is no security. If you are here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never have peace. You'll never have any rest. But Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will do what? I will give you rest. When the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, He saved us. God demonstrated His own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Father sent His love into the world by sending Christ. The Father delivered over His Son to death, sparing Him not that He might spare us. And the Father personally rescued each and every one of us from a state of death. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. Brethren, if God's love gave heaven's greatest treasure, the Lord Jesus, to save your soul, how could we ever doubt the Father's loving heart? What greater demonstration can there be than the giving of Christ to save? Behold the nature of the love of God. He is love. Love motivated His saving actions. The Father Himself loves you, as Jesus said to the disciples. Well, let us stop and take that in. Let us believe our Father's heart is one of kindness toward us. We don't have to go through life with heaviness, weighed down with fear and doubt and miss the privileges that we've been given and the joy we can possess because God has loved us. But then secondly, much more briefly, what must we do with such a truth? Well, secondly, see, receive the Father's love. Jesus says of the good ground hearers in Mark chapter 4, verse 20, that they hear the Word and accept it. That's what I mean here by receiving the Father's love. Accept it. Divine truth that is conveyed to you in the pages of the Bible has to be welcomed in the heart, received by faith. The truth can't be kept at a distance. 
by mere intellectual assent. Yeah, I see that God is love, but I don't accept that the Father loves me. Well, have you rested your faith in Jesus Christ? His death in your place, His life is your righteousness? Do you trust in nothing of your own flesh, but only in the work of Christ? Then the Father has shown you His love. And you can't get out of it. If you rest on Jesus, you have peace with God. And the love of the Father abides on you. Peter says that Christ suffered once for all time for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring our souls to God. Peter with that language is saying, Jesus has ushered us into lasting fellowship with the Father. The Father has loved us and we can't be cut off from it. So now we can know the Father's love. We can draw near to the Father. We can see that the Father loved us and exercise our faith on that truth. Jesus is leading us to see the Father's loving heart and to rest our souls in never ceasing affection. No longer are we alienated, strangers or enemies. We're welcomed as the sons of God. So we don't view the Father as distant or cold or unapproachable. Like the older brother of the prodigal. Remember what he had to say to the Father? How I've slaved for you and I never ask you for anything. As though the Father is mean and stingy. Neither do we view the Father as hard, callous, and severe like the wicked servant in the parable of the talents. I knew you were a hard man, so I buried the talent in the ground. No, instead of these false ideas, we have to see that our Father has lavished His love upon us, and that love never stops. That we're well-pleasing in the Son. And yet, even as I utter those words, knowing something of my own heart, and something of what is common to man, I know that doubts still spring up. We're always ready to qualify the love the Father has for us based on what we've done. I didn't do my quiet time today, so the Father doesn't like me today. I didn't say the right thing to my spouse, so the Father doesn't like me today. We're all inclined to think that the Lord is perpetually angry with us because we stumble and fall. And in our present theological climate, when folks proclaim grace as a cover for their godless living, when they have or promote wrong views of sanctification, we think any persistent talk of the love of the Father, it just makes me nervous. I don't want people talking about the love of the Father so much. It makes it sound like you don't have to be holy. We're ready to make sure that everybody understands Love needs to be properly qualified. God's steadfast love is for those who fear Him. Well, that's true. That's a Bible verse. But our reservations about God's love cause us all to doubt that His love belongs to us. We qualify His love to such an extent that we don't truly accept it. We fail to take in the plain and overwhelming truth of God's Word so that our Father remains in our eyes stern and unsympathetic. And I can tell you, the devil claps his hands with joy 
when He stirs you to look at God with a jaundiced eye and to buy into the deception that God isn't good. Satan made it seem to our first parents that God wasn't wise or good or full of benevolence. That God didn't have our best interests at heart. Or God didn't really grant you freedom. That He kept you from your fullest potential. He painted the Father as stingy and cruel. Well, brethren, what is the source of these hard thoughts about God that we possess? Why do we think that our God is lacking in love? It's not the truth. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And our unbelief is ready to lay hold of it. We have a lack of love to our God because we don't view Him for who He is. And we'll see throughout future weeks that this is not the nature of God at all. His love for us is eternal. It's a faithful love. It's not fickle. It's unconditional. It's not based on your performance. And it is secured in Jesus Christ. And while our Father is certainly grieved by our sin, even His chastening rod comes from a loving heart. He disciplines those He loves. He's treating us as sons. He can't stop acting in love towards us because that's who He is. It's His nature. So let us put off our struggles to believe that the nature of God is love and that He has a loving heart toward us. Let us not fear to have good thoughts of God and to receive His love. If you have an idol with you this morning, I can't see it's invisible, an idea that God is harsh and distant and cold, it's time to bring out the hammer and to smash it and to believe what God is saying that you might abide in this truth. John Owen says again, get this, so much as we see of the love of God, so much shall we delight in Him and no more. Let me say that again. So much as we see the love of God, so much shall we delight in Him and no more. If the love of a father won't make a child delight in him, what will? Put your thought on this thing that God is love. And why should you believe it? Because God sent His Son to save your soul. Well, briefly, thirdly, how should you respond to this? You should return the love of the Father. This is really just a point of application. The whole sermon has been exhorting us all to believe the Father loves us. If you know Christ, if you have set your love on Christ, it's because God loved you first. And knowing that, hearing the love of the Father, hearing Him tell you this repeatedly, what else do you know? Well, you know you ought to respond. What's the great commandment? The greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. See Him as love and love Him with vigor. Let us love Him with the intensity of our being. 
Let no apathy or lukewarmness overtake us. Let no distractions get in the way. Let no other loves obscure the Father's supreme love so that we cease to give all of our love to God. I'll close with an illustration. In Psalm 63, it's a dark season in David's life because of David's sin against the Lord and the affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. The Lord told David that the sword would never leave his house. We fast forward a number of years and David's own son Absalom is pursuing his father to try to kill him. It's a dark night of the soul. David's on the run. He's weeping as he goes, but he writes a psalm in the wilderness, Psalm 63, and he perhaps doesn't pray what we would expect. He says this, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon You in the sanctuary beholding Your power and glory. That is, I've seen the signs of Your glory in the meeting place of God. But now I'm far from the place of God. But then he says this, Because Your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise You. Even in a moment of supreme trial where David is being disciplined, he believes God's steadfast love is great, that it's the greatest gift, and he would rather bask in worship of the God of love than secure his own life. He understands the love of God. So in the crucible of trouble, he won't stop returning that love to God. Brethren, that is how we come before our Lord with love upon our lips to Him. We cast ourselves before Him in worship. We bless His name. We look at our lives that could never merit the love of God and moved by His love to us. We sing to Him and pray to Him and listen to Him and live for Him because He loved us when we had nothing. Is this what we're doing? Are we eyeing the love of the Father? Are we taking it in to receive it? And are we returning that love to the God who loved us first? Let us pray that such would be in our soul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do marvel over the revelation of Your character. We thank You that love is set upon us from eternity and love is demonstrated in the giving of Christ. Lord, help us to truly take in Your love and not to go on in our Christian lives with heaviness in our soul as though there's no reason to be joyful. Lord, we pray that You would make us to see our privileges and to delight in You, the God of unceasing love. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.